When we think about prophets and what a prophet is, sometimes we think of someone simply who is someone who tells the future. But really, one of the functions that a prophet served was maybe we might think of as a prosecuting attorney, as a way to tell the people about God. So we are in a study on the prophet Hosea. And Hosea, let's remind ourselves a little bit about who Hosea was and then how he functions as maybe a prosecuting attorney. So Hosea lived or served as a prophet around 730 to 720 BC. And so there's this time in which God's people, the nation of Israel, is divided into two parts. They've split into two nations, a northern nation and a southern nation. The northern nation has 10 tribes, southern has two tribes, but the northern nation is called Israel. So it gets a little confusing sometimes because you have Israel, the northern nation, and also Israel, the whole nation. I don't know why, it's just confusing. So that's, and then you've got the southern tribes, the southern two tribes, which is Judah. So you have Israel and Judah. And Hosea serves primarily as a prophet to those northern tribes. And so why is it significant when this was? Because at this time in history, this is right before the kingdom of Assyria comes and takes the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, off into exile. They come in, they capture them, and take them off to a foreign land. And that happens in 722 B.C. One of the few dates that's kind of important to think about when you're remembering when you're studying your Bible. So this is a time when the nation is doing it. And God allows this to happen because the people are rebelling against him. Remember, God has called his people to be a special people. He's rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to a nation and said, you are going to live here and you are going to show the rest of the world how good I am. You are going to show the rest of the world what it looks like to live as my people. And his people kept turning away and turning away and turning away. And God said to them, if you don't stop, if you don't repent, if you don't turn and change your ways, I'm going to send a foreign nation to take you off into captivity. And that's where the prophets come in because that's what the prophets would do. They would come and they would remind the people of these promises that God made. They would say, hundreds of years ago, your ancestors gathered at Mount Sinai and God met with them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And being my people includes living a certain way. And so he gave them things like the Ten Commandments and all these other commands said, live this way and show people what it's like to live under God. And when you do that, if you do that, you'll be blessed. But if you don't do that, there'll be consequences. And one of the consequences might be you are hauled off into captivity. So Hosea is looking around the nation and he's seeing people worshiping idols. He's seeing people living contrary to the way they're supposed to do. He's seeing the priests are taking advantage of people. He's seeing people who are tilting their scales, all sorts of injustice and wrong happening in the land. And God speaks to him and says, go to the people and tell them what's going on. And so that's what Hosea is doing. Now, Hosea is a little bit unique because Hosea begins his prophecy by living out and demonstrating to the people what God is like. And so we talked about that last week. The first three chapters of the book Hosea is this living parable, this living story where Hosea marries a promiscuous and adulterous, a woman of prostitution. He comes and he takes her in, and it's a picture of how God 
chooses and pursues and continues to love and be faithful to unfaithful people. And so the title of this series, Unfailing Love to Unfaithful People, is really the story of Hosea. And Hosea lives it out and says, this is what God is like, that we and God's people continue to chase after other gods, continue to do all sorts of other things. And what does God do? He continues to pursue His people. Sometimes He allows punishment, sometimes He sends punishment, but in the end what we see is God's unfailing love, His pursuit of His people to love and to bring them back to Himself. And so the first three chapters have kind of told this story of Hosea and his wife Gomer, and then has painted that as a picture of God, and now chapter 4 begins sort of the prosecution. These Next six chapters, really, or seven, four through ten, kind of tell this story where Hosea is laying out the charges, saying, this is what you've done. And I want to really focus just on the first three verses of chapter four today and think about what these are and how this might apply to the people of Israel. But more importantly, what do they say to us? What are they talking to us about? And so Hosea begins chapter four. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. And so here we hear these words of bringing a charge. And it's language we think, well, what's the legal basis? What's, what's, why is it called a charge? Because it's, there was, what had happened was God's people and God had made a covenant, this sacred relationship they had entered into. So we go back in history, God's people come out of slavery. They come to Mount Sinai and God makes a covenant which is this formal relationship between the two people. And so just as Hosea and his wife Gomer entered into a covenant, a relationship, God enters into a relationship with his people. And part of that relationship, there are agreements. There are things that are going to go on between the people. And so he says, here's what's wrong, Israel. The end of verse 1, it says, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement or no knowledge of God in the land. And so these three basic charges are really closely related. There's this idea of faithfulness and of love that are very similar. And in some sense, he's just kind of multiplying. He's adding up these things. He's saying there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. It's all in some ways different ways of saying the same thing. These words faithfulness and love are often used of God and the word love here is not an emotional thing. The, the Hebrew word is hesed. Can you say that? Hesed. You've got to kind of, kind of like cough a little bit when you start it off. It's hesed. And hesed is this word that is, we, is often translated as love, but one of the older translations uses the word steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. It's this idea of being faithful to the promises. And then it also talks about no acknowledgement of God in the land. And here the word is yada. See, we're going to learn a couple of Hebrew words today. So this one is yada. Can you say yada? Yada. And yada is knowledge. When you think of knowing something, what do you think of know? How do you think of that word when you know something? You can repeat it to somebody. What about when I talk about knowing someone? And knowing someone, that's the nature of what is going on here where the Hebrew when Hosea uses the word yada. He's talking about knowing in terms of a relational knowing. 
And so I might talk about, in some ways I can say, well, I know Donald Trump. Well, I don't really know Donald Trump. I know about Donald Trump, don't I? I can read the news, I can read stories about him, or I can read you know, about Adele or about whoever we want to talk about. I can know other people. But then there are people in my life who I know. And that's the kind of language of what this is of knowing is this experiential relationship of having truly a relational nature. In fact, if you really want to, if it gets even deeper than that, if you were to go back to the very beginning chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, who remembers that story? So we have God creates the world, right? And he puts in it a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And then it says, and the man knew his wife. And so sometimes even that word yada is translated in a different way. It has a very different connotation because the man knew his wife and she had a baby. So yada has this deeper, but so it, yada is more than just an intellectual knowledge. Yada is more than that. And so when it says there's no knowledge of God in the land, it's talking about this reciprocal relationship, this ongoing relationship, which makes perfect sense because what Hosea has just painted an image of God and his people as what? A marriage. And so when it's saying there's no knowledge of God in the land, in other words, they're not living this relationship like they're supposed to be living the relationship. So that the knowledge is about putting it inside and it results in conduct and it results in these things. So when Hosea says there is no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God in the land, he's saying people aren't living out this relationship with God the way they're called to live out the relationship. It's, it is saying in part that they don't know the commands of God, but it's more than just not knowing what God wants. It's saying that they're not doing what God wants. They're not living out. They've been called to live in a relationship with God, and they're not living that out. And how do we know that? It goes on in verse 2. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. Lists off five things. Where else could you find those five things in part of a list? It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of that central relationship, that central covenant, that central bond made between God and His people, He lists off five of them. No cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. And so He puts those all in. He says, that's what's happening. He's saying this is evidence. He's saying rather than love and faithfulness, rather than knowledge of God, He's saying this is the opposite. So in other words, what does knowledge of God look like? It doesn't look like lying, stealing, cursing, and murder. It looks like something different. But when those things aren't happening, that's what we have. And so Hosea is describing the situation in the land. He's saying, this is what it looks like. We're not living it out. And he's saying, in fact, they're breaking all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then we have this interesting line. He said, because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. And so a couple points I want to make here as we think about that. He's saying, one, that what happens as a consequence of the people's sin? Sometimes when we think of the things that we do, we think of, well, it's just between me and somebody else. You know, nobody else 
needs to know what happens. It's a small effect. What Hosea is saying here is that the sin of God's people affects all of creation. Even that language, the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea. Again, flip back all the way to the beginning chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I've said this, if you guys have been listening to me for any period of time, I've said this again and again. Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely essential for understanding the rest of the Bible. I would encourage you to go back and read that regularly as you're reading everything because you will find again and again what I've called hyperlinks or things back to Genesis 1 through 3. And here's one of them. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea. That's a way of saying, what? All of creation. When God creates, he creates the waters and he puts the fish in the waters and then he creates the beasts in the land and the birds in the sky and those are the three realms, the three parts of creation. And so when Hosea says this, he says, when you sin against me, it affects all of creation. It affects everything that's going on. And I think this is important for us to remember because we have to remember that the, con the consequences of our sin go far beyond just our own lives. And I also want to make another point, and that is this, that sometimes, and we'll move forward to 2020 here, sometimes we can look around and say, oh, there's all these problems in the land and, and it's these secular courts going on and it's this and that and they're causing all these issues. What God consistently and the prophets consistently say is the problems going on in the world are often the results of the sins of God's people. He doesn't say the land is drying up because the pagan nations are doing bad things. What does he say? He says the land is drying up and all who live in it are wasting away. Why? Because of the sins of God's people. And so we need to be thinking about sometimes when we look around and say, oh, our nation is going downhill and it's all because of them. Maybe sometimes what we need to do is flip back and say, what is it we are doing? Are we living out our covenant faithfulness to who God has called us to be? Are we lying? Are we stealing? What are we doing and how might the things we are doing affect the world going on, because what we do does affect it. And Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter to a Birmingham jail said this, he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Read that last part again. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that's what Hosea is saying here. Is that whatever we do, it has an effect far beyond what we can see. And so Hosea is bringing these charges and saying, people of God, you're not living your roles. You're not doing what you're called to do. And as a consequence, all of creation is being affected. So those are the kind of the opening chapters. And if we were to continue through chapter 4, we'd see one, a whole bunch of charges against the priests. Whole things about the leaders 
of God's people, about how they've led the people astray. They've profited off the sins of the people. There's even this passage, that last verse there, they feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. Think, well, how in the world do they feed on the sins of the people? Well, how did the cultic system work? How did their system of worship work? Well, the way their system of worship worked, when you committed a sin, you would bring an animal and you would sacrifice. And one of the privileges of the priest was to eat part of the sacrifice. So, if you're a priest, lots of sin in the country, it's good for you because that means lots of steak. That's kind of what's going on. It's literally, they're feeding off the sins of the people. There's no reason. The priests aren't calling the people to righteousness. They're not calling them to repent because they're more than happy to. I mean, listen to that language. You feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. They relish the wickedness because every time somebody sins and has to come to the temple and commit a sacrifice, they get a new meal out of it. And so here are the priests profiting off the sins of the people rather than the priests calling the people to repentance. They're profiting off it. And he said, just earlier, that's verse 8, but verse 6, so my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. They're destroyed because they don't know what God has taught them. And why don't they know? Because the priests haven't been teaching them. And so these are the things that are going on. So here we see all these consequences, all these effects, because there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And it's that same sort of thing here. When we think about our relationship with God, God is calling us to those same things. God is calling us to faithfulness. He's calling us to love. He's calling us to knowledge of Him, to living out as His representatives. And so I want us to think about some applications for us as how we might think about these words as spoken to us. What would God be saying to us? And one is, it's an invitation, as the Bible often is, to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves and see how does our life, how does the way we live, how do the things we do, the way we treat people, how do all those things reflect the nature of God? As we think about how Jesus lived his life, how he taught and how he treated people and the way he acted and then the things that he taught and the way that he called us to live our lives, if we take an honest reflection and a look at our lives, how does what we do and what we say reflect who Jesus is? How do we show our love for our neighbor? How do our words that we say or the words that we post online reflect who God is? When we talk about groups of people, is the language we use reflective of their value as people who bear the image of God? Or is it something less than that? When we care for the creation which God has given us, when we take care of the resources that we have given, when we're at work and in our honesty, all those measures of things, how do we reflect this relationship we have with God? Now, we didn't enter into a covenant with God at a mountain, but when we give our lives to Jesus, we enter into a relationship with Him, and as part of that relationship, He calls us 
to be his people. He calls us to reflect that goodness. And so as we read these words to Hosea, it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was those people a long time ago. But it's also an invitation to say, God, show me where in my life I'm like this. And I think it's important that we ask God to help us in this process for two reasons. One is it's easy to deceive ourselves. It's easy to fool ourselves to say, oh, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm really doing pretty good this week. And to say, God, show me where those are. But it's also important to ask God in the process because sometimes, depending on our personality or depending on what we're doing in our life, we can become overwhelmed. I mean, we can start looking at those bad things and all we can do, we can begin to think of ourselves as worthless. And having God along on the journey reminds us that we are not worthless. So we examine ourselves and then we say, God, I need your help. I need your help to be faithful, to love, and to know you. So I want us to think about three ways we can do that. First is in terms of knowledge of God. One is we need to know who God is and what God is like. And one of the best ways we can do that is by reading our Bibles. I saw an interesting study recently that showed that during the time of the pandemic, Bible reading had actually decreased. I mean, you think, we have all kinds of time now, right? I mean, many of us aren't going anywhere. But reading of our Bibles has actually decreased. One of the best ways we can get to know not simply about who God is, although that's an important part of it, we can learn to know what God is like, who God is, but we can know God better is to spend time reading our Bibles. To read it both broadly and deeply. And by broadly, I mean that idea of reading big sections of it and getting the story, the whole picture of those things, of what's going on. But also to read deeply, to sometimes maybe take just a verse or two and sit and reflect on it. And it might even be helpful to do something like that, to find a passage of the Scripture. Maybe I might suggest the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Pick a time period, maybe a week, probably longer than that, two, three, four weeks, and just read that every day. Take you 10, 15 minutes to read that, depending on how quickly you read. But read it and just keep going, and then read it, and then read it again the next day. And read it again, because it's this great, I suggest that passage, because it's one of the great pictures of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. One of the great pictures of what it looks to live a transformed life. What Jesus is calling his people to be. And it's a great way in which we can examine ourselves. But I would also suggest not only reading your Bible, but reading Christian history, reading theology and tradition and thought, and learning about what has happened in the history of God's people. There is, and this is both blessing and curse, there is no shortage of information available these days. Particularly if, if you have, okay, I'll say this, if you have access to the internet, there is no shortage of information. Along with no shortage of access to information is no shortage of access to really bad information. And that's sometimes the challenge, isn't it? To sort through, you can go and if you were to do, want to do some sort of Bible study or learn Christian history or theology, you can look and you could find all kinds of things. Some of it is wonderful stuff. 
And I will say that some of it is garbage. Some of it is just not good. But start reading. And if you have questions, if you read something and say, well, I don't know. Or if you just want to say, hey, pastor, I want to learn more about Christian history. Or I want to learn more about this. I am more than happy to point you to resources. In fact, if you don't have access to the internet and you're willing to read, I have a few books in my office and you're welcome to come in anytime and you, I'll say, here. And I probably have a book on a topic that you're interested in. And if I don't have the book, I have this incredible weakness where I buy books a lot, which <laughs> demonstrated by the vast amounts of books on my shelf. And true confession here, no, I haven't read all of them. And that's another one of my shortcomings. It's like, oh, that looks like a really good book. And so the stack of book, unread books keeps getting like this. And I'm like, oh, but wait, there's three more books on this new topic that I want to learn. So anyways, back to the sermon at hand here. So we need to know, we need to know these things. And so it's important to learn and to grow. But remember back when we said it's Knowledge of God is not simply head knowledge. We can know all those truths. We can understand systematic theology. We can talk about church history. We can recite vast amounts of scripture or be able to understand. We can read Greek and Hebrew and do all those things. But God doesn't simply want us to be able to know. He wants us to know Him and to be in relationship with Him. And so God also invites us, and so the second kind of application, if you will, is to continue to grow your relationship with God. To spend time with God, and that can be reading Scripture, it can be praying, it can be walking in the woods, it can be sitting quietly in a chair, it can be whatever way connects you with God, but spend time talking to God and listening to God and growing that relationship because that's this thing about who God is and what God has revealed is God wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't just want us to be able to recite and spout facts about Him. God wants us to truly know Him. And so think about the ways in which you can grow that relationship with God and grow it as an exclusive relationship with Him where you're not chasing after other gods. So so we need to increase in our knowledge about who God is, but we also need to increase in our knowledge and knowing of who God is in relationship. And the third thing is to recognize that that knowledge, knowing about who God is and knowledge in relationship to God, also needs to lead to participation in God's way of life. It needs to lead to a particular way of living. And so here, what Hosea is saying, no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, that that knowing of God should, as a consequence, lead to a particular way of living. And when we're not knowing about who God is and we're not in knowledge and relationship with Him, it leads to a bad way of living. And so we need to think about how are we living our lives? And I've already spent some time on that, to think about how is our life reflecting the goodness and the glory of God? How is our life reflecting the love and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so God is inviting us to participate in that way of going. So Hosea's invitation, Hosea's words to the people of God then, there is no 
faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God is a call to us and a reminder to us that that's what God wants from us. God wants love. He wants faithfulness. He wants acknowledgement of Him. And we need His help to do that. We need His help to do that. So have Him show you, invite God to show you where you are missing the mark. And then invite God's help to show you how you can begin to live that way. And as we think about it, think about the consequences of that. If the consequence of disobeying, the consequence of the lack of knowledge is destruction and bloodshed and the land drying up, the exact opposite is true. When we're living faithfully, when we're living in loving relationship with God and when we're acknowledging who God is and growing in that knowledge relationship, it, that reality creates a blessing to the people around us and to the world in which we live. That's who God made us to be. And so may we grow this week, people of God. May we grow this week, church, in our love, in our faithfulness, in our knowledge of God. Amen.